0: Uh, If you'd bow with me in prayer, we're going to ask for God's help as we dive into his word. So let's pray. Lord, we're really grateful that you are a God who reveals uh, both yourself and your redemptive plan. We're able to know about who you are because you show us uh, your character and your nature and your plan in the written word. And we see how you've interacted with your people uh, throughout millennium and by your Uh, Giving of your own son, you've revealed again yourself and your desire to both destroy sin and to restore a faithful remnant to you. Uh, Lord, thank you also for the Holy Spirit who is in us, who guides us into all truth. And we ask that you would teach us now, Lord, from your word, uh, that we would know more clearly who you are, that we would love you more and orient our lives to faithfully following you. So teach us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open uh, your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, I'll tell you right now, we have our work cut out for us today. We've got six chapters. So hopefully you brought some snacks or refreshment to sustain you. Uh, We're gonna work hard this morning together. Isaiah chapter 7. As you're turning there, let me ask you this question. Who or what is the primary source of trust in your life? And how would you... Identify or recognize it. Um, In the United States, as you know, if you pull out some currency, a bill, or a coin, and you look on it, it says right on the top, In God we trust. Uh, And yet, is that true? When adversity comes into your life and threats uh, emerge, to whom or to what do you trust? What if your income or your financial security were seriously threatened? What if your home nation and the integrity of it was at risk? What if your health were compromised? What if a loved one seriously failed you? What if you were going to lose your home? What if your church family really let you down? It's easy to say in God we trust uh, when we have money in our pocket and friends and Christians in our corner. Uh, it's easy to say that when our nation is a superpower. And we've got medical insurance and maybe even a little bit of retirement. But what if all of that were threatened? Could you still say, I trust in God? Uh, today, as we look uh, at Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, we, we're continuing to track along with Judah here, who is facing a threat in virtually every one of those categories that I just mentioned. Uh, their national security is at risk. Their economy their solidarity with their brothers to the north, their system of worship, the entire infrastructure of their society. Every security that Judah has built up for itself is under threat. And their present king, Ahaz, who makes their decisions for them, is aligning the nation against the Lord and against his will. And so this morning, what we're going to see from their example is this, that whatever we trust in, instead of God, will ultimately disappoint us and eventually harm us. That competing sources of trust in our life are actually idolatry. Whereas God himself says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So the first point I'm going to draw out of the the text here is this, that threats reveal what our true source of trust uh, really is. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, and king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Well, obviously, we've moved down in history a little bit here since uh, last week. Uh, We looked at Isaiah 6, and we kind of were seeing the commissioning of Isaiah uh, in the year that King Uzziah died. Well, that king is dead, and his son Jotham reigned and is now gone. And now we're on to King Ahaz, his son. So we've moved along here. Uh, And King Ahaz, just to give you a little bit of his bio in case you're not familiar with him, he turns out to be one of the worst kings Uh, in Judah's history. Uh, And you can kind of take a a snapshot of his reign in 2 Chronicles 28 if you want to look at that. Uh, But basically, he has no redeeming qualities. When you typically read Chronicles or Kings and they give a description of the king, they usually say he did this and this and this, which was well, but he did not do such and such and such and such. It's usually a mixed review. Ahaz gets all zeros on his evaluation. No redeeming qualities whatsoever. Uh, He is one of the worst kings. And what we find here is that Israel, who is referred to as Ephraim in our text, uh, combines with uh, Syriam or Aram, trying to essentially build uh, an alliance with King Ahaz so that they can stand together against the Assyrians and against Tiglath-Pileser. That's a lot of names and places to kind of orient, right? So I don't know about you, but I need a map. And here we go. Here's a little map for you. So hopefully you can see, you also have it on the back of your handout, if that's helpful. Uh, hopefully you can just kind of see right here where Judah is. And just straight to the north of them, you can see the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. And kind of uh, east of them, uh, uh, you can see uh, the kingdom of Aram with Damascus as its capital, or basically Syria. And so the, the blue and sort of that greenish region, those two have formed a coalition, and they're trying to grab Judah Uh, to the south there to join them so they can all together stand against the Assyrians to the far north, actually just on the edge of the top of the map. And that's basically what's happening. And so to Judah, uh, this coalition has come and basically given them a join or die campaign. Uh, And we see it in verse six. Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. In other words, if Ahaz won't join us, that nation won't join us, we'll just depose the king. We'll insert a puppet ruler and uh, we'll have our way and uh, they'll be with us. Well, if you're King Ahaz, you you can just kind of imagine the pressure that he would have felt. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. Assyria is the superpower. He can't stand against them. Supposedly, his brothers to the north have formed another coalition and they're really opposing him. Uh, there's a no-win situation here. Uh, he can join the unrighteous uh, far northerners of Syria and maybe be victorious, or he can join the slightly less righteous uh, brothers to the north and probably lose. So this is kind of like a scene right out of Star Wars, isn't it? Join me, and together we can rule the galaxy. Which group do you join, the rebels or the evil empire? That's basically what's happening here. What to do? And so, uh, God graciously, in verses three through six, He sends the prophet Isaiah uh, to instruct uh, King Ahaz about what he ought to do. And He tells him, "Do not fear this coalition to the north that is threatening to depose you." Look at verse three with me. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, "Go out, or go out, you and your son Shear-Jashub." to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field and say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. What a great picture. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramalia, Ramalia, Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin saying, let's invade Judah, let's tear it apart, let's divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. So if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So again, Ahaz is staring down the barrel of a lose-lose option here. The only question is uh, lose now or lose later. That's kind of the way it looks. And yet God speaks. And he orders him to what would be maybe even a harder course of action which is the course of non-action. Uh, he asks them essentially just to wait. Stand firm in your faith. If I'm Ahaz, that's maybe the hardest choice of all. Joining one of these sides makes sense, trying to figure out you know, who to, who's going to be victorious. i got to join a side here. But to join nobody and to just hang out there in the breeze, that's scary stuff. I think that's the harder course of action, just the waiting, the sitting still. (laughs) This reminded me of when I was a a real little kid. I used to travel back to Traverse City, Michigan to visit uh, our family, our extended family. And one day I was left in the charge of my grandfather. And uh, I was kind of a rambunctious kid, if you can imagine that. And uh, I was running all over the house, making a mess of things. And I thought this particular day, what would be fun would be to grab the end of the toilet paper roll And just run out of the bathroom with it in my hand and see how far I could get. And I started running all different directions, stringing it out through the house. This was great fun, great amusement for a little guy. And then my grandfather saw it. And uh, it was time for punishment for this wild kid. And what he had me do is he says, Eric, come in here and sit down on the couch. Just sit there. Just sit. Just be still. Don't do anything. Don't move. Don't do a thing. And that was awful punishment. I was like, could I have a spanking? Could I have some chores? You know, could we get on with something and just have some closure in this? But just to sit still and do nothing and wait for whatever was awful, awful kind of punishment. Parents, I give that to you for you and your family to consider. And that's effectively what God has for, for Ahaz here and for Judah just sit or stand in your faith, really. And as though he anticipates the difficulty of this order, he says, I'm going to give you a sign to confirm this. Look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord, your God, for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Well, I think this really gives us quite a glimpse into Ahaz's character here. This is nothing more than disobedience masked as piety and self-righteousness. It is true that in the Old Testament, we're told do not put the Lord to the test. Uh, And yet God specifically says, ask me for a test in this instance. He he tells Ahaz to essentially do that or give me a sign rather, not a test, give me a sign. Uh, But Ahaz is like, listen, I I don't wanna know this is, this is kind of like him saying, please don't tell me what you really want because then I'm going to have to do it. I'm more comfortable in the shadows of a don't ask, don't tell policy here. And I'll just cover that in a spiritual veneer. We really see the duplicity of Ahaz here. And I think it's kind of easy for us to look at this guy and make him sound bad and make him look childish and self-righteous and fearful, but quite frankly, we look an awful lot like him a lot of the time. When we're caught between similarly uh, opposing struggles and we don't know how to find our way through it. We're caught between two morally questionable choices. How do you decide? Two ugly paths, unwanted consequences. Two impossibly difficult situations. What do we do? I think sometimes the hardest thing for us to do is to simply wait and to wait upon the Lord. Waiting is one of the ways that we actively put our trust in God. It's not the only way. There are times we're called to faith and obedience and action. Uh, David stood up against uh, the Philistines that were opposing the army of the Lord, disparaging his name, and he threw the stones to Goliath. That was not an obedience, a faith of obedience there. Sometimes we're called upon to do something that's courageous and costly, like the widow who gives her last coin. But sometimes we're called upon to do the hardest thing, which is simply to wait, to stand in our faith that the Lord has things well in hand. Uh, I think that's especially difficult, especially in our culture, who loves action, progress, metrics, results. Uh, The American Western church has wholeheartedly accepted Ben Franklin's theological mantra, God helps those who help themselves. And that's really how we kind of walk through life. And quite frankly, that's the philosophy that Ahaz will exercise here. He will try to help himself, and it will eventually be his downfall and the downfall of the nation of Judah with him. All right, let's move on in our story here. Ahaz isn't interested in God's sign. Hides it under a pious veneer. But God's going to give the sign anyways. Uh, I want to just mention this. There's more than one reason that God may give a sign for something. Uh, And I I just want to kind of lay this out there quickly. Sometimes it's for confirmation and encouragement. Think about the Abrahamic covenant. The promise given to Abraham about a, a nation and descendants. And he basically protests to the Lord. How can I know this? How can I know that you're going to give me Uh, descendants. I don't even have an heir. I'm going to have to give all my stuff to Eliezer of Damascus, my servant. He's not even family. And God said, what? Look to the sky and see the stars and count them if indeed you can. So shall your descendants be. He gave him a visual. Sometimes, so sometimes it's confirmation, encouragement. Sometimes the sign is vindication for God himself, like the sign of Jonah, rebellious prophet who wouldn't do God's bidding found himself in a sign, a sign that would later have significance for Christ. Sometimes it's a sign of judgment uh, for the faithless. If they won't do God's bidding, then his sign will sort of operate in in condemnation towards them. So there's more than one reason that God has given a sign throughout history. And I want to be careful about this because I know Kokel's going to talk about this at CTF. I'm not saying we should be asking for signs. But when God offers to give one... (laughs) Let's not disobey the Lord and put it under a guise of piety. Let's look at verse 13. Then Isaiah said, Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? There's an ominous note here. Just a few verses ago, it was your God. Now it's my God. He really identifies Ahaz as not a follower of God at all. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people And on the house of your father, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. The remainder of chapter 7 just kind of gives us a very colorful picture, uh, really, of the shame and the demotion that is going to happen to Judah and to the people there. Uh, Some of the word pictures are incredibly descriptive God whistling for the flies and the bees. In a sense, the troops will come in like a swarm and cover the land. Uh, he says that he will bring them uh, like a razor who will shave the land. Or, and and it's, it's basically a, a, a when, it, when a person was shaved of all their hair, that was a mark of, of, really, of, of shame and, and uh, disparagement. And God is saying, that's what it's going to be like for you. What happens for Judah is they do make the coalition with Uh, uh, with the Assyrians. They try to take matters into their own hands. And it really uh, starts the demise of the nation uh, as they no longer possess their independence and their strength, and they just become a vassal state, uh, really, for the Assyrians. And so this is to their discredit. And I think there's a really good lesson here about fear. When when threats come our way and, and they hit us, we, just like Judah, can shake like trees. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen here? But God just refers to this, uh, these two nations to the north as smoldering stubs of firewood. That is a Fairbanks picture. Uh, next time you're at a bonfire and it's kind of starting to tail down and you just have a couple of little stubs of wood left there just smoldering, the intensity of the flame is gone. Just remember That's a picture of those who posture themselves against the Lord. Just burning out. No threat at all. Moving on here. God shows himself to be trustworthy by giving this sign. If you've ever skied into a cabin, you've been on a ski trail, and you're trucking along, and you think, boy, I kind of hope we're on the right path here, and I hope we're getting close. When you see that little marker on the tree that tells you where you're at and the mileage, you go, oh, good, I'm on the right path. We're heading the right way. I'm getting closer. This sign that God gives here of this virgin that will have a child operates like that. It is confirmation that the Lord's plans are well on their way. And we need to look at this um, kind of this sign in sort of uh, three different aspects of it to rightly understand it. First of all, there's the term virgin. This creates a lot of confusion. The word is alma. And it has a range of meaning. It can mean anything from a young woman of marriageable age all the way to one who has had no sexual history or both. It can kind of mean anything within that range. And the context is what helps us determine which one is in view here. And so what we find here is simply just a young woman. Uh, And I think the person in picture here is actually Isaiah's wife and maybe even a second wife because it... Identif- kind of identifies her as a young woman here. Um, and so this does not, in this instance, mean a supernatural birth. It just means that a young woman will give birth. That's what's being told here. Second thing to understand this, uh, we're told that, uh, to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, in other words, this living child is to be a visual encouragement for God's people to stand firm in their faith. A child will be born, you'll... You'll see this little one, and that's to be a trigger for you to trust the Lord. He's your defender. He's your protector. There's no reason to fear. So we might ask ourselves then, well, who is this child? Uh, again, I think it's Isaiah's child. I think it's between him and his, his wife because as we move along into chapter 8, the next thing we see is verse, uh, right here in verse 3. Brace yourself for a little, a little more detail than you might like. Then I made love to the prophetess, meaning his wife. And she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Can we agree that that name is not playground friendly? For before the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Again, I believe this child here in chapter 8 is the child of promise from chapter 7. That might cause us to ask the question, well, we we had two names here. So what's going on there? We have this Mahar Shalal, Hashbaz, but we also had Emmanuel. So how can this be one and the same person? Well, I think there's a distinction here between the name that he is given and what he is called. And we see this in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, Right? Mary is to give him the name Jesus because he is the savior of many people. But he will be called Emmanuel, who is God with us. One relates to their name. The other is to what they're called. But overall, we're meant to see that this, this little one that is born is going to serve as a sign and a signal of God's presence and his care for his people. When Amy and I first started dating, um, I was uh, down in Southern California and she was in the Northwest. We had met in the summer and we both returned to our schools. And so we started a long distance dating relationship, which was lousy, did not like that initially. And I uh, wanted to go see her, but I couldn't afford to go for Christmas. And so I, sent my, uh, I had to send my first gift to her, my Christmas gift to her. And I didn't have any money as a poor college student. And I happened to have this, this uh, old uh, wool cable-knit sweater uh, that I didn't really need in Southern California, and I thought, I think I'll send that up to her. So I wrapped it up, and I sent it, and I scored big on that, because when she opened it, I know her family kind of oohed and awed over it, and my intention behind that was, I can't be with you, but here's something of mine that you can have. It was meant to be a gift of presence, that she could sort of sense my care and my affection. We still have the sweater at our house. I should have brought it this morning. Um, But Amy wore it when she was pregnant with Aiden, so it's never really been the same since that. (laughs) (laughs) She's not here this morning. I can get away with that one. This child is meant to be a gift of presence. Thirdly here, the child introduces a timeline. Ah. it basically shows that the threat from this northern coalition is going to be short-lived. Once the child comes, before this little one can say mom or dad, the threat's over. So how long is that? You know, two years, maybe three, whatever. It's not long. It starts the clock. When we first uh, moved uh, to Fairbanks, Aiden was just a, f- a few months old. Um, and so he is, for us, uh, a living timeline of our time here in Fairbanks, Alaska, so on a Sunday morning, if he's standing nearby and somebody asks, uh, how long have you guys been here? I can say, mm, about that long, right there. That's about how long. Uh, and this little one is meant to be a witness of the shortness of the time that they're going to have to endure these threats. How long are we going to feel this threat? About that long. That's it. Uh, All of this significance contained within the sign is meant to give reassurance to a troubled king and a frightened nation that God has all of this well in hand and these threats will not go on forever. Don't trust in earthly alliances is what he's telling them. And he places within their sight a living witness to encourage them this way. Now you might sit there and go, well, that would be great if we had such signs today. It would be nice if something were so clear to us uh, that we could absolutely know that God is with us. It'd be nice if it was personal, like this living uh, little boy here, this little kid. It'd be nice to have a timeline of the the way in which God was working. Yeah, it'd be great to have a sign like that. The answer is God has given us a sign because what is started here in this immediate situation finds greater fulfillment in the sign of Jesus Christ that he is born. This is pointing to him. He is a picture of God's living presence within us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. By the spirit of God indwells us. And it does start the clock for God's redemptive plan for when he restores all of mankind. He has done this. We have a greater version of a sign than what Ahaz and Judah had. We have Jesus. Third point here, God's sign has both near and far significance. Again, this, this little one was supposed to be a daily living reminder that God had this well in hand, that this impending threat was uh, going to diminish and quickly. And then God gives really this wonderful oracle on how we are to look upon sort of the affairs of life around us. Look at verse 11. Uh, we're at chapter 8, verse 11. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Well, this oracle from God here basically starts off by telling us, don't look at the action in the world in the same way that the world views it. Don't call conspiracy everything that someone calls conspiracy, meaning we don't want to just look at the actions that we see around us and attribute them uh, to human agents, to just mankind doing what they wish to do. We are meant to see in all of this a worldview that God is acting with these people, that they are agents that he is using in this world. It's not simply mankind having their way with one another, but God is at work. And that is what we're meant to ask here. Do we believe that God is at work? Even the events that we hate and dislike, that these two are instruments in God's hand. I spoke with a friend this past week And he told me that if a particular candidate was elected this week, uh, that they were going to leave the country. I won't tell you which one. And I heard that and I thought, I know whom or what you trust. Your source of trust has been exposed. Romans 13 tells us there's no authority, no governing authority, no power that exists except that God has ordained it. They don't have to be right or even right with God to be the instrument that God is using to facilitate his plan. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe that God is at work all the time? Or do we just think these are human conspiracies on a human plane? Do we just believe in a a world of mankind? Or do we believe that God is intervening in the world as it is? In other words, when COVID happens, when a contentious election is happening, When there's social unrest, when the economy is in trouble, when we have our own personal illness, when we suffer our own loss, do we think God is involved in those things, or are those just the bad things and they have nothing to do with God? God is at work all the time. And I think one of the things this reveals in us is that we make too many decisions based upon short-term fear. We lack long-term faith. Uh, We fear mankind, Uh, just as as Judah does here. Pekah and Rezin, these two kings terrifying them, just stubs of firewood burning out. So that's the near significance of this sign, but there's a far significance too. There's an immediate fulfillment, and as with much of prophecy, there is a subsequent fuller fulfillment to come. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Some of these passages are going to start to sound very familiar. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Skip down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And what we see here in both this near and far implication is that our God is playing the long game. He has this moment well in hand, but he controls the future as well. In the same way that this first child was a sign of God's presence and his protection for the nation if they would choose to follow him, so is this future child a sign of his presence and his protection for those who choose to follow him. So God is concerned with what concerns us today. But he holds eternity in his hands. And the same way that this first child started the clock for them of this threat being removed, so does Christ's birth in the New Testament start the clock for God's redemptive plan and the consummation of all things. This sign is even fulfilled more greater in this sign. God's ultimate rescue. Fourth I think we can see here that God's ways are mysterious. We would look at some of these these dramatic movements and go, that's not how I uh, would do it. God provided a sign to encourage them of this near threat. And while he does so, I mean, we can look at this and go, this is really cool. This sign that appears here points to Christ. 700 years later, that's awesome. But that's also a long time of waiting, isn't it? And even since Christ has been born, we're waiting 2,000 years since then to see God restore all things as he promises. It's a long time. I think one of the things that we're meant to take away from this is that our theology really has to be bigger than just what I will call a folk theology. In other words, we have to grasp that God is bigger than just a personal relationship. And what I mean by that is this, it is true that God is personal, that he is a person and he relates personally to us. But if by personal, we simply mean that God just fits neatly and nicely into my life. When I need him, I call upon him like rubbing a genie's lamp or having a little lucky rabbit's foot. That's not having a God, that's having an idol. That's saying that God is my servant, not the other way around. That's the construct there. I will remind you, that we don't invite God into our lives. God has graciously invited us to join him in his life and what he's doing in this world. We have to remember that God has a cosmic redemptive plan and the long-range view that God is doing this in the world. And I think that gives us a better framework to deal with so-called evil that we might see around us. Remember the prophet Habakkuk had an issue with this. I told you about it last week. His book is a wonderful read of a person going, Lord, there's evil in the world and I don't see what you're doing with it. And ultimately he learns that evil is even an instrument in God's hand. God is not the author of it, but he can use it. And as we skip down to Isaiah 10, now we get to see how God speaks to the evil instrument he's using, Assyria. These are, this is kind of a fun section here, if you're not Assyria. woe to the Assyrian, Uh oh, the rod of my anger and whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against the godless nation. I dispatch him against the people who uh, who anger me to seize loot, to snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Skip down to verse 12. When the Lord has finished all this work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for his willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. Skip down to verse 15. Does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? Or the saw boast against the one who uses it? If a rod were to wield the person, as if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up, or a club brandish the one who is not wood. This is a great picture here. God is basically saying, you know, Assyria, I'm going to use you, but don't mistake that for my being on your side, for you being right, or for my being pleased with you. And this tells us that the sovereign Lord of the world even uses the wicked to unwittingly accomplish his purposes. Judas, the religious leaders, and Satan himself all thought they were victorious when the Lord was taken and crucified and yet they were unwittingly accomplishing the redemptive plan of God. God uses evil in his mysterious plans. And finally here, we basically are moving kind of from the micro to the macro, small to big. God's redemptive plan is to judge evil, restore the beauty of his creation, and to reward a remnant that's faithful to him. Uh, In other words, uh, Our faith is not simply to be, oh, Lord, uh, give me a good parking spot at Fred Meyer. Uh, That would be you at work in my life, Lord. No, that's kind of like a picture of karma, and that comes from a totally different faith movement. We have to remember the big picture redemptive plan of God and how we fit into that. And I think it's really interesting here how we look at sort of just take a glance at these last two chapters I just want to show you a word picture that's here, and I'm going to leave it at that. It seems to me like God describes all of his methods in this whole section as almost the methods of forestry. I don't know if we've got any forestry fans in here. But consider the word pictures that he uses. He starts off with this threat from the north that causes the Judeans to shake like trees. But God refers to this threat simply as smoldering stubs of firewood. And then we move on, and God basically says, I'm going to judge the rebellious by bringing this rented blade down from Assyria to cut them down. And then God cautions the haughty Assyrians that in the same way an axe is used, you're just a tool in my hands. Don't think too highly of yourself. I'm using you. And then in chapters 11 through 12, this forestry theme continues, and we see that the kingdom is essentially clear cut, and what remains is but a stump. But from this stump that God has laid low, a branch of life emerges, and this is pointing to the person of Jesus Christ, a future king. So like any good forestry work, there is a cutting down. But even the cutting down is ultimately for health and restoration. That's what God is doing. His redemptive plan is to judge evil, restore the beauty, and reward a faithful remnant. We have to keep that big picture in mind. And then we're going to close with this. God leaves us this picture of what this beautiful time, this reign of peace, looks like in chapter 11, uh, starting at verse 6. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that a good picture? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. My friends, the encouragement here is this. Stand strong in your faith. or You will not stand strong at all. God has the micro and he has the macro. It's all well within his hand. Would you pray with me? Lord, there's a lot going on in this passage, and I'm grateful that we can learn from the people who have gone before us. I pray that we would learn from them so we would not repeat their mistakes. Lord, everyone in this room faces some kind of a threat, large or small, and it causes us to question, whom do we trust? I pray, Lord, that you would give guidance for each one on how they are to stand strong in their faith, whether it be action or whether it be waiting. May we trust that you have all things well within your hand and evil even what looks like evil is not just the conspiracy of man, but even our God at work. Uh, Lord, thank you too for the reminder of the Lord's Supper to which we turn now that we see you can use even evil to redeem your people. We're thankful for the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus for it's in him that we have life. Turn our hearts and affections to him now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.